netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you in-depth interviews with visual effects artists around the world. The FX Podcast was started to give us a place to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hard-working creative people producing amazing work. Radiosity, point clouds, deep compositing, advanced research, the latest visual effects news, business issues, this is your chance to hear directly from the source, from the front lines of visual effects. Today, we have an exclusive interview. There's been a lot of talk in the last week or so about a post by an anonymous blogger who calls himself VFX Soldier regarding a recording of Digital Domain CEO John Texter giving a speech to investors where he referred to a school they're building in Florida. In this talk, he mentioned that up to 30% of the staff would be students who are paying to work on the films. I don't want to try and rehash that here or even try to revisit it word for word. If you've not followed the threads, you should head over to vfxsoldier.wordpress.com or Google VFX Soldier, and you can hear the words directly. Check out the numerous posts and comments. We know a lot of you have been watching this closely. We've been following labor issues for a while now and have never seen the kind of reaction this statement caused. John Texter himself even commented on this blog and even got into a bit of a back-and-forth with DD founder Scott Ross. Eventually, Texter posted an invitation for anyone who wanted to do an interview, so we took him up on it. Our Mike Seymour went to Digital Domain Studio in Venice, California, and sat with John Texter for an extended interview. Let's listen to that now. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we were keen to have a chat with you. Um, obviously, there were some remarks that were cut and pasted on the net, and that caused quite a, uh, a lot of interest. I guess my question is, were you surprised by the reaction to what happened there? Uh, sure, um, because I, I'm not I'm not surprised by the reaction, um, you know, positive or negative to the quote. I mean, it was, you know, stupid thing to say. But certainly, that taken um, a, away from a larger discussion about what the program is. Um, a horrible way to say it, bad choice of words, uh, looks much worse in print than it felt in my head, certainly. Um, so I'm not uh, surprised that there would be a negative reaction to it, especially if taken as a soundbite. Um, I am surprised at how negative the reaction has been. I mean, we we like to think that we're part of the solution, not the problem, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about some of that today. Um, but to take, um, you know, some tongue-in-cheek comments that uh, were, you know, maybe intended to be provocative in an investment environment. Uh, You know, the Internet brings things together in a way where what you say to an investment crowd is easily played to an artist crowd. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, God, I wish I could take it back. And I, at the same time, uh, I wish I as I have a chance in this interview, I wish I have a chance to defend it. Um, it's, it's both, um, I hate to think that one soundbite, you know, gives everybody a belief that they understand fully this program, because I think the program is very good. 
uh, it's uh, very malleable. It's a couple years out before some of these things really happen. So there is a discussion to be had about whether or not we're doing things the right way. But yeah, I'm very surprised by the reaction. Well, let's set the stage before we, because uh, we will have time to discuss not only the specific education program, but also um, some of the other uh, structural issues that the industry mm-hmm. faces. Um, but let's just set the stage for uh, the company, Digital Domain. Obviously, many people would know it just as an effects house. Many people would know it just as an effects house here, in where we are now in Venice. But in fact, uh, I believe that the company has, what, now four locations? Is that right? Like the company is uh, about, I think from your own uh, company filings, you're about 933 staff. Is that about, is that about yeah, right? Yeah, that's about right. We... Um yeah, we've grown quite a bit, um, and I, that's sort of to our point, why, why we, we like to think we're really making a commitment to artists, especially in North America. We were at about 373 people when I first became involved with this company back in 2005. Um, of that 933, about 670 are in the U.S. Uh, the rest really are in Vancouver. So we have... a a location in Playa, a location in Venice. We actually have a very small location in San Francisco, um, and we have the location up in Vancouver, and we have a location in Florida. Um, actually, two cities in Florida, Port St. Lucie and West Palm Beach, so maybe that's a total of six different offices within North America. So uh, so you came in with, of course, uh, Wincrest, which I understand is Michael Bay still involved in... There's quite a few people that like name have been. Yeah, so Michael is still uh, has equity interests in uh, Digital Domain, the visual effects company. Um, he, uh, you know, what we have in Florida, which is known as Digital Domain Media Group. That's, you know, it's by definition the parent company of the visual effects company. And uh, Michael really just had an interest in feature film visual effects and also commercials, uh, visual effects. He has got quite a track record in large commercial effects films. So, but what we have in Florida uh, is a feature animation uh, business uh, focused on family films and also the education business, which obviously we're we're talking about some today. Um, And so uh, the setup in Florida is is a new kind of uh, location. It's an expansion of what you have. But I should get you to clarify, you're not relocating staff from the L.A. office over to Florida, is that right? Well, I mean, you may, but a small not... number. Yeah. I mean, you know, a small number of people from California have taken advantage of the opportunity to be a part of something a little different. Um, and we've made it, we've tried to make it very clear to people here in Los Angeles or Vancouver or Florida that one of the benefits of an increasingly diverse um, I'd call it a visual effects-based company where what we do in visual effects has created these other opportunities. You know, it is kind of neat in an industry where, I mean, the challenges, you know, that we face, uh, some of the challenges that create a lot of the anxiety we see, um, you know, maybe digital domain is a neat place to go because if you're looking for a lateral move or a, a, a change of pace, a way to take your skills from one discipline of visual effects into another part of the business, whether it's feature animation or, uh, yes, uh, simulation, which we've talked about, or education, I think Digital Domain offers a lot of places to move. Um, 
which a singular visual effects company wouldn't offer. Now, the Florida operations are going to involve, I understand, um, original productions that are more sort of from the company, right. as opposed to just sort of gun for hire, to use that uh, slang expression. Uh, and I think the first film is Legend of Trembo, is that right? It's about a, a young African elephant, is I... Yeah, Legend of Tembo. Tembo, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Tembo is a Swahili for elephant. And, and, and so that's something that was uh, brought to life through the studio? Yeah, it's an original story um, by uh, Aaron Blaze and Chuck Williams, our co-directors, and our uh, writer, Will Schneider. Um, and uh, the very first drawing, the first idea uh, happened in Port St. Lucie. That's, that's kind of neat. Um, it'd be just as wonderful if we picked up a project that was already moving, but I think it's even more special that uh, it's original not only to the company but to that studio. And, and who's distributing that? Who's, is that? Well, it's very early, and I've, I've you know, as, as you've now seen, I have a habit of thinking out loud, <laughs> so I'll do it again. Um, I think it's really, really early uh, to make a distribution deal for a film that comes out in the end of 2014. I think with um, with a push of a button, you can get to the vast majority of screens in North America, big and little, and I think by the time that film comes out, that'll be true of the rest of the world. Um, there are markets where I think the advancement of digital distribution and how it affects marketing and distribution of films um, it's not likely to change quite as much as it, it, it might in certain places. So China, for example, um, we just signed a co-production and distribution agreement uh, within the People's Republic of China with Galloping Horse Films. So we do have a, mari- a, a major co-production and distribution partner in China, um, which I think is appropriate now. Um, because there's, there's just been an increase in the level of American films able to be got into China, hasn't there, through right. the federal initiative? Yeah. yeah, they just opened up the quota. This is a story that is uh, that has a significant sort of China um, sort of uh, cultural backdrop to it, um, and uh, you know we're we think that's well ahead of schedule for this film to have a distribution agreement already in place across the countries that are within the People's Republic of China. I think it's too early. I'm sorry? Will I be working on the film? I mean, that, that deal you said, that co-venture, will they be... Yeah, a bit. Uh, yeah, okay. A bit. I mean, it, because it, it's so much of what you've seen, in, especially in children's animation films. I mean, the terrific Kung Fu Panda, um, you know, had a very playful view of, you know, the culture of China. Um, expect The Legend of Tembo to, to really speak much more authentically to the culture, uh, because it's a big part of the story. Um, and so I think it was appropriate, given that it's, uh, it's really a story-driven uh, co-production distribution partnership. I think it's way too premature to do that uh, you know, in North America for a film that comes out at the end of 2014. And we're self-funding this project uh, a good while longer before we seek that. So um, you did say in, uh, I think, a response uh, that I saw uh, that you might have posted online um, that you thought that there were uh, problems in the industry. I think you actually said, um, you might have even used the word broken. But... There are, most people would acknowledge, some real challenges facing uh, the industry at a structural level. Um, do you want to articulate what you think some of those might be? Well, look, I, I think, you know, for those of us, uh, and that's a lot of us that have had a chance to work with the best storytellers and the best directors and uh, the biggest filmmakers in our industry, we know how 
wonderfully uh, myopically focused they are on their stories. And it, it doesn't matter what a major filmmaker might be like between films and who they are. When they're working on that film, it's the single most important thing that they're doing. And if you roll that back 20 to 30 years and you think about the creation of this industry, it was created by major filmmakers that you know, really needed to create these companies because they had dreams that went far beyond uh, the capacity of production at that time. And the only way they would get their dreams on screen is if they, you know, coupled with their film business, also built these visual effects businesses. And it's not a coincidence that the, the great visual effects companies are were, were really in numbers started by the greatest of filmmakers. Um, so what happens between those big projects, right? It, it, I mean, it's it's incredible when they're, you know, pumping through the studio and everything's electric and wonderful and you're creating visuals that you've never imagined before. And the great directors always push the top companies to, you know, to, to push for something that's never been done before. Then the film's over and it's like, um, you know, I, it, it was, well, I, I'm going to get in trouble if I think about the analogies to this, but, you know, when the high ends and... Uh, what happens between these films, and and it feels like uh, prosperity, um, one moment, and then survival the next, and so it's been a troubled business model in that respect from the very beginning, because you've got to build such incredible infrastructure, incredible capital expenditures, you've got to hire people, you've got to train people, you've got to maintain your relationship with these people, and then when the movie ends, especially if it's a really big one that's got huge effects, well. You fell in love with 300 people that you worked with on that film, and then you lay them off, you know, a week later. Um, I've, one of the things that I've thought was really bizarre about this industry, and I, I hate to speak about this, uh, you know, under current circumstances, because obviously I have no direct experience with this. Um, it, it was, uh, I think we were 18 months into our ownership of the company when I first became aware of this, that when you hire people... You give them a start date and you tell them what their wage rate's going to be and what they're going to be working on. And that same letter where you say, congratulations, you're now with Digital Domain, it has an end date on it. So who gets their hire letter and their pink slip at the same time? I mean, this is the only industry where I've seen that happen. So how depressing is that? Um, so I think that's a broken industry. You know, when you can't keep your people working. I'd love to hear your views also at a structural level uh, in terms of um, uh, government uh, role in this? Because, for example, uh, British Columbia... Well, an example... Let me use this example uh, because not to do with digital domain. Um, uh, New Zealand uh, gave James Cameron, or other the production company that was involved in it, uh, quite a lot of money to make part of Avatar in New Zealand. And if you do the maths, it's like about $10.60 or something per man woman, children, man, woman and child in New Zealand donated because if you divide the 43 million something by the population in New Zealand that's what it comes out at and so clearly the New Zealand government said hey we think it's a really good idea to help fund a filmmaker to have part of um, Avatar done in New Zealand but of course from another point of view Jim Cameron's kind of successful guy um, and he made an incredibly successful film with Titanic um, and New Zealand isn't alone because you can look at a lot of states a lot of countries there's a lot of stuff in particular uh, British Columbia obviously you've got an office there so you know this firsthand uh, there are a lot of people that 
want a film industry in their neck of the woods. And it may not be even for economic reasons, um, but that tends to also factor into that transient nature of, a, of an employment group, doesn't it? Because you tend to get these situations that productions now move all over the world. I mean, you're here in effectively Hollywood, centre of uh, filmmaking for many years, but you must be feeling those pressures to compete against subsidised work all over the place. And I presume it's one of the reasons you're in Florida as well, because you're you know, working with the government there to bring the film industry to Florida. Well, yeah, I mean, there were not... There were film incentives in Florida, but they were unfunded uh, as we arrived there. The, the economic incentives that we received to go to Florida were mostly about startup and launch and initial training. And um, that, you know, the fact that there were not rebates or tax credits that were funded when we got there wasn't as important to us um, because, frankly, I think you have to assume that those aren't always permanent anyway. Mm. And the reason you have to assume that and you take that very seriously, uh, which is why Vancouver is so remarkable, is to open up a visual effects studio or an animation studio, it's not like uh, a typical uh, film production where you can go on location and turn on a bunch of cameras and bring craft services and uh, makeup and you know everybody um, that's in a typical live action shoot you know, they show up, they film, and they leave. Um, and in our case, it's much riskier. We've got to build a building, build a data center, build a render farm. Hopefully, you know, we've got terrific um, access to dark fiber, uh, you know, redundancy. I mean, it's a real project. You, you can't just open up a visual effects studio and then as soon as the incentives end, pull it out. So... Um, What's remarkable about Vancouver, which is, I think, why it's working so well, is, I mean, they really have a well-defined, you know, Dave credit, digital animation, visual effects. And the legislation is very well-informed. And you can just look at the drafting of it. It's highly specific and knowledgeable of what animation and visual effects is. Um, so, you know, we all went up there. Uh, built buildings, built data centers, built render farms. We clustered, which is great, right? Because it gives the artist comfort that they're not just going it alone with one firm in a far-off location. Florida does not have that luxury, um, and we knew that going there because, you know, there aren't three other firms there that can support the artist if they have a problem with us. So we went to Florida knowing that we're not going to hire contract labor. We're going to hire staff. Everybody there is an employee. Uh, and we had to tell them, look, you're here for the long haul. Now, that's why feature animation works better in Florida than visual effects, uh, because these films, as you know, these large-scale feature animation films take, you know, four years. So it's, it's, there's a lot less risk for a feature animation professional to go to Florida than a visual effects professional. So am I right in saying, I think I remember going there ages ago when my kids were tiny, and at Disney had a... Uh, feature animation unit, I'm sure, there. But that didn't succeed, I'm pretty sure. Or at least they decided to move it back or away. No, it succeeded. Okay. And, and it, you know, I talked to senior people at Disney, uh, well, that are no longer at Disney, that were there back then, and I had some very, uh, had a nice opportunity to learn a lot about how they viewed that animation studio and why they closed it down. I think I recall the number being about 400 people or so, and maybe only 12 were given offers to come west. Um, it was very successful on story, and it produced some very successful films. 
but there were so many other reasons why they needed to consolidate uh, costs and, and, and leadership. Um, so they closed it. Uh, and that was a big part of why we went to Florida because uh, there's, I mean, one of the best animation schools in the country in Sarasota, which is Ringling. There's Savannah College of Art and Design just north of the border. Uh, there are even schools that nobody talks about, like University of Central Florida, which has incredible digital media and video game um, curricula. They've developed that in large part through their relationship with electronic arts. Uh, you've got no state income tax, low cost of living, and you had that history of, of Disney folks, uh, a lot that had moved out of Florida and wanted to come back. And if you go down to our studio now, it'll feel like a Disney reunion of those people. Um, from our head of creative development, Pam Coates, you know, who was head of creative development at Disney for 20 films probably, Aaron Blaze, Chuck Williams, Craig Grasso, these people had moved elsewhere and they sort of came back at, in, in our project. So I guess I, I need to ask the question, as I understand it from your own 10K, like you've had in rough terms about 135 million in government stimulus financing, which is spread over a series of years and, and in uh, installments and sometimes in different forms. Nevertheless, that sort of gives one a sense that there has been a, a partnership with uh, Florida. but move forward three years is that like the kind of timeline like in three years you'll know if it's worked and then it'll be sustainable on its own sort of feet or do you need ongoing support to stay in florida well that was sort of the point i was trying to allude to a minute ago um the assumption was the incentives go away uh and you are only there because you believed you could build a good business there so the idea in florida would be that we would combine a nucleus of seasoned professionals with talent that's coming out of the schools or that may be in the local market or want to return to that market. And by the time the grants were spent, uh, we would have gotten that studio to a level of uh, professional self-sufficiency so that it could support an original content feature animation business model. And um, the What's really kind of bizarre about our numbers on a financial reporting basis, it's, you know, and I've got a significant amount of knowledge in finance, and they're actually pretty hard for me to read because the way the rules work, there, there really is no accounting literature um, that anticipates a small private company being so heavily funded by government grants. And the way we have to account for things, we have to show the expenses of launch up front and, 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 and think what those are. You can't just uh, put somebody in a training program and put them on a top quality film very quickly. So you've got to pay a full salary to somebody for many, many, many months before they're qualified to even work on your own films, let alone uh, uh, contribute to you know, client films and visual effects. So we went to the state of Florida and explained this and said, you, you know, your typical $1,500 per employee grant is not going to cut it. Um, but if you give us X amount of grants, we'll put them through our training program. And before the grant money is spent, um, these people combined with our, you know, nucleus of, uh, professional talent, uh, will be suitable to support our business model feature animation. So here's where we are on that. We, so the accounting to get back to this point, we have to show the expenses up front, 
But the grants that we got from the state of Florida that paid for those expenses, you would think you'd be able to count those at the same time because they funded that training. Well, those are spread out under the accounting rules over many years. Even if we've already spent the money, we don't count it into grant revenue for years to come. So we certainly look much less profitable than you know, we are um, because of the weird accounting of it. Uh, the good news is we have three divisions there. We have feature animation. We have a fairly large uh, stereo conversion team. And we have a very small and specialized visual effects team. It's frankly working more on special venue projects and sports applications and some neat new uh, lines of business for visual effects. Uh, the feature animation team is doing you know, incredibly well uh, on The Legend of Tembo. Um, the quality of the work that we're getting out of obviously our long-standing industry professionals combined with the new people we've hired is quite good. That team is still pretty small. Um, the stereo conversion team, a large part of that team came from the company that we had acquired in three. So 48 or so of the 65 or 70 employees from in three actually made the move all the way to Florida. That was what was interesting. They combined very well with local talent hired right out of local colleges, people with digital media kind of uh, experience. We took them through a boot camp and now they're They've been very effective in generating high-quality 3D stereo conversion. So the studio, um, you know, really prior to the expiration of all that grant money, is putting out very high-quality work. Um, and it seems to have worked. And if we never get another dime of incentives in the state of Florida, we think we've got a very nice, balanced business just based on talent and the low cost of uh, living in Florida. Well, let's, let's talk about the Florida operation now, especially in terms of this um, uh, quote from the investor uh, forum that you were giving. So um, if I could just get down to the tin tax on how it's going to work, because I think there's some confusion, and certainly I've seen some clarification that you've made, for example, in the LA Times. So if I could just walk through it so we know exactly what we're talking about in kind of detail. Right. So you said, uh, I believe, so just pull me up here at, at any point if I'm wrong, that uh, about 30% of the workforce over in Florida, I don't know if I, if I understood that to be both locations or just one, would be uh, students that are part of a program on some kind of uh, what I would call work experience, I think you call them internship. Is that, is that valid? Well, let me correct my own words to some extent. Um, you know, first of all, I'd start by saying up to 30%. Sure. I would also say that that that's a very high percentage, and it's it's certainly wishful thinking, um, and that could only really occur in certain types of workflow. Uh, number one, we have no plans to do that in our feature animation studio at all. Um, that the feature animation studio uh, is likely to to really never change beyond what what we all do now, which is that we bring interns in over the summers and occasionally we meet somebody who's really incredible. In fact, this past year, we did incredibly well attracting some, some key artists out of um, schools prior to graduation, so they spent a summer with us. So that, that's going to work the way it's always worked. Um, when we talk about using uh, student labor as a resource, um, Really, it's much more likely to be effective in stereo conversion than it is mainline uh, visual effects 
you know, as we know it. Um, and the percentage of students that are likely to contribute is likely to be much higher in stereo conversion than it ever would be in visual effects. Um, up to 30%, we've debated that number a lot. And, you know, it is, when I say wishful thinking, that's sort of the optimistic number when we look off into the future to a program that hasn't really even started yet where we're not going to let students touch a single frame of one of our films until they're at least in their third year with us. So they've had two full years of training at the Digital Domain Institute um, under the watchful eye of our professionals uh, using our software. And then in their junior year or their senior year, or also think about this, our graduate programs, because of our relationship with Florida State, we have the ability to offer a, a, a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, or a Master of Fine Arts. So that graduate student might be somebody that's got five years of work experience that wanted to come back and retrain. So So, so, then, can, I, so I guess clarify, yeah. so the, the 30% would be of like the 500, like we're talking 150 people, or it's 30% of a much smaller number? Oh, I... I just, yeah, I'm sorry. So in Florida, to be clear, the big operation there is feature animation. That's the new facility, the 130,000 square feet. Uh, we're not planning on using uh, student you know, labor as a resource in any material way in our feature animation division on The Legend of Tembo or on film number two. Uh, normal internships the way every other firm would have them. Sure, um, and there are internships at the White House. And that's in Port St. Lucie. Down in West Palm Beach, which is about an hour south yep. of Port St. Lucie, that's where the school's going to be built. And um, the idea is we'll have 150,000 square feet to start um, for the school. Of that, maybe 50,000 square feet of that will be uh, a visual effects, uh, digital production, stereo conversion facility, uh, which will also include uh, some of these other areas, military simulation, surgical simulation, um, applications for video games, for aviation, for engineering, digital content creation. That's important to understand because that's a really small studio, especially a studio that's going to wear many hats. You can hardly fit 150 people in total in that 50,000 square feet. So the idea in Florida is have a, to have just enough digital production, uh, pieces of films, pieces of games, pieces of simulation projects, so that the students have um, access to real work. So it, that portion of the 150,000 feet will be a working digital production studio, um, but by no means is it the leadership uh, studio for the larger digital domain business. So just, just to use some numbers, see if I'm in the ballpark, so that may be like 100 people of which you're saying optimistically, if things went well, 30 could be right. in the student capacity. Is that right? Sure. Okay. In Florida. Okay, well, that makes the maths easy. So let me ask you this question then. And just to clarify, because I think this is a direct quote from the New York, uh, from the LA Times, that it would be actually 150 hours of someone in their third or fourth year. Like they wouldn't be full time for a year, it's a portion of their. Right. Is that right? Well, that's the minimum. It, it can vary depending on okay. the type of major they're pursuing and the type of work they want to do. Uh, let me put sort of in front of that, I mean, the, the whole program on the internship is voluntary to begin with. You can go to the school, take the classes, uh, pay your tuition, 
get training from Digital Domain and get a, a general education from Florida State University and never work on a Digital Domain project, that's also perfectly fine. No, no, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I guess, I mean, uh, so there's, there's two things I think here. Firstly, I think people need to understand what it is that the program actually looks like because obviously it isn't. You get a whole lot of people that join as students, immediately start working 52 weeks of the year as uh, interns producing visual effects work. So you, right. you're talking about a section of them in their, say, third year, right? Like they're going to do an internship. Yeah, they're not going to touch a frame until their third year. Okay. But by the same token, if you you said 150 hours would be like a minimum, is there a, is there a high end on that? Like do you anticipate that somebody might be on this program for like a month or two or six months? Or? Well, no. I mean, they should be on it. See, what, what college has changed a lot since I went, um, you used to have general education courses throughout your four years there. And then you would have a major concentration, but you would never, even when you focused on your major in your last two years, you never fully, um, you know, were divorced of non-major classwork. Uh, whereas now in many schools, you'll get your general education out of the way in your first year or in your first two years. So your math, your history, your English. Uh, and then it really is hardcore at many schools, and it certainly is at the Florida State University Film School, and your last three years, two years, it's all film school. So, you know, that we'll follow that same model because the Digital Domain Institute uh, is a dual enrollment program. There's the Digital Domain Institute, then there's the Florida State University Film School. And in both cases, um, you're really going to be getting your general education out of the way pretty early, and you're going to be pretty hardcore either film or digital film in your last couple of years. So the way we see the internships working, there are uh, unpaid internships, which is the subject of this, you know, um, this issue that we're quote, yeah. this strange quote and this, this anxiety. Um, and then there are paid internships, which will also be at play here. Here's where we see the difference. If uh, it's long-form visual effects work or stereo or animation and I don't mean feature animation, I mean animation within a, a professional uh, framework. Um, if it's long form and it can be integrated with the academic uh, workflow, so that you really are giving them a project and you're teaching off of that project, and it suits both a professional purpose and an academic purpose, then that would be technically the unpaid internship. But keep in mind, that's the... the um, uh, the, the, the college credit uh, kind of apprenticeship program. Yeah. So you're going to be working for college credit, which is a model that we certainly did not invent. It's used in many colleges, um, and we thought it applied very nicely to this work. So that's when it will be uh, unpaid for college credit apprenticeship. When, on the other hand, uh, somebody shows up with a 911 project, and it's a really neat project, and it's, you know, 30 shots, and they got to be done quickly, and it's going to be a lot of hours, and there's absolutely no way that anybody at Digital Domain or, or within the Institute can say with a straight face, this is educational. Well, that's got to be work-study, and it's got to be paid. And I think we'll have both, because still it's going to be a great resource for studios and, and, and people to use from time to time. 
But you've got to pay for that work because you can't put somebody on it 60 hours a week and say, oh, by the way, you're, you're doing academic work when everybody knows you're helping somebody get their film done. So let me, let me paraphrase, I think, what the concern is and uh, let's see if we can, we can address them. So the concern number one is that uh, somebody is going to basically be working for you for nothing, in fact, paying you by virtue of the fact they're paying for their education. So consequently, uh, this drives a business model down. So you could, and I'm paraphrasing, basically bid 30% lower than somebody else because 30% of your labor force isn't a cost that you have. And so consequently, you know, someone else is bidding against you uh, has to either match that price or lose the work. So that, can you just address that yeah. issue? Yeah, well, I would like to address that because I don't plan on growing our work for higher visual effects business. That's not our business model. Um, I, I, you know, I, I hate to say this. I'm sorry. I'm sort of an outsider to the visual effects industry until 2005 when I showed up. Um, I don't think it serves any purpose to dramatically grow our visual effects work for hire business. It's the most painful business I've ever seen. I mean, if you if you really tried to run 300 million a year in revenues as a visual effects company you'd be hiring and firing hundreds of people at a time because you never can line up the next film to match the end of your last film. And the margins aren't that great to begin with. And all we're doing is chasing lower margins and geographies all over the globe, and we're going to run out of real estate. And the studios who we, you know, we love our customers and we love our filmmakers and they give us this work to do, but the savings that we get in incentives pass to them. The savings we get in labor pass to them. So it is not our business model to grow visual effects and underbid everybody and get all the work that I may have lost to Sony last year. It's just not even in our thought process. Okay, well, let me ask you the second point. The second point comes from... Now, you're going to have to excuse me because I'm an Australian, so I, I apologize if I get this wrong. But as I understand it, if somebody wants to work for you, uh, let's just be broad about this. There's like four ways they could work for you, right? They could be, you mentioned two of them already, an intern that's unpaid, a paid intern, which is completely fair enough and, you know, great. Just an employee, right? You could just employ right. somebody. And then I think there's a fourth one, which is an independent contractor, which is another classification. But anyway, those are the four kind of ways that somebody could work for you. And the, the problem I seem to get from what I, as an outsider, real outsider, uh, see is that, that under your American um, Department of Labor, there is a question about having uh, interns displacing regular employees um, as part of an unpaid program. So, so I'll ask you, and that's a long question, but is there an issue here of whether it's okay to have unpaid interns doing what would otherwise be a paid job? Well, go back to that distinction I made a moment ago. If, if there's professional work that is woven um, together with the academic kind of workflow and there is a real sort of their academic ob objectives and, and you're delivering on that, you know, to, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's not so much a Department of Labor issue as it is you know, a Department of Education issue. You okay. have you go through accreditation. You have to have a real academic program. And when you integrate uh, private enterprise with public education, uh, you've got to be accountable to delivering truly an academic result. Um, 
let's take uh, MIT, for example, and I, these, are, these numbers are not exact. Um, I don't know if the number is 12% or 20%, um, but probably less than 20% of the revenue at MIT comes from tuition. The rest comes from a whole lot of other sources that are uh, very active in accessing um, the people, the teachers, and the students at MIT for research and development, for lab work, for... I mean, we're not the first to to look at students and say, well, we can maximize their educational experience while also providing benefit to private industry so long as they're getting either work-study wages or they're getting college credit. Oh, no, no. I, I totally yeah. understand this is not like an original thing that you've thought of, but... So the Department of Labor has seen this before. We're yeah. not... It, it's... Um, I, I can assure you everything we're doing is in compliance with law uh, and is, you know, the, we, we didn't... Let me criticize the for-profit education space because that's how this started. Okay, but can I just yeah. interrupt you just please. to say... No, yeah. no, just, just to say one thing, uh, yeah, to please. get things on the table. Like, I am myself associated with a for-profit educational institution in my other half of my company. So I just want to get that on the table because okay. I don't want to be like accused of All trying right. to dupe you by not, uh, not confessing to that. We, we do online stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so please continue. So here's my critique. Um, this whole thing started... Uh, as an afterthought, you know, education as a business model. Uh, what we did say when we acquired, you know, Digital Domain is that we wanted to, um, we wanted to, to, to utilize the digital studio, the people, the creativity, the, uh, the technology in other ways. Education wasn't one of them. I mean, originally we were focused on uh, original content creation. We were focused on how can we use some of the technology that we develop in visual effects in other ways. Education was not one of them. It's entirely an afterthought. We had decided to go to Florida, build the studio. We knew there were great schools there. I started touring the schools, uh, not just in Florida, but in the Southeast. And we found schools that were um, where you'd see more people in their student loan processing department than you'd see in faculty, right? Where they would take advantage of what in this country we'll call Title IX money, uh, Title IV. I'm getting that wrong, I'm sorry. Title IV money, uh, which allowed students, if they applied to one of these for-profit colleges, to get student loans, to get Pell Grants, to get everything else. And these were factories where so long as they, they had no enrollment um, selectivity, they would accept everybody that applied. And if they didn't have the money, they would help them borrow money. And so... In the animation and visual effects space, you're seeing people graduating. There's a school with something like, I don't want to quote their number, they probably have over 10,000 students. You're Half, referring to full sale, aren't you? Because you mentioned this already online. Yeah, I might be. Okay. I think they might have 12,000 students, and half are in sound, and half are in animation, video game, visual effects. And it might be a wonderful experience when you're there. I'm not sure. I'm, I haven't been a student there. But there just aren't enough jobs in this industry to... to to, to satisfy all that. They graduate 500 kids a month. And so wh what about that? Somebody graduates $90,000 in debt. There aren't enough jobs in the industry that they've chosen. They've fallen in love with the sex appeal of film and video games. They want to make the movies they watch and build the games they play, and it doesn't work. Okay, so let me be so, devil's advocate for a second and say, referring to your own uh, investor speech, but also to the numbers that you guys published under the deal you did with the state of Florida, 
you guys promised to deliver a bunch of jobs that delivered at least 64000 I think, $233, yeah. like as a salary, right? And you did that. You delivered in excess of $65,000 per salary uh, employee of the numbers that you've so far done. So you're doing exactly what you said you should do, and that seems like a sensible salary. I think the concern, though, is, and the reason why you got uh, some, some pushback is that if somebody's on that $65,000, they're concerned about somebody on minimum wage, even if they're a paid intern on minimum wage. I looked it up. Florida pays $7.67 right. an hour. Now, I have no problem with, with uh, minimum wage or what Florida wants to pay, but clearly, if you do the math, that's going to come out at like $15,500 a year, a heck of a lot less than sixty-four. And the guy in sixty-four or sixty-five thousand probably doesn't want to go down and compete with the guy at the unskilled minimum wage. Now, I'm not for a second suggesting that they can both do the same job, but the the complexity of this isn't just the idea of the salary going down. But if you do get some people, let's say they're paid interns for a second, right? They're theoretically not that skilled. They're still going to require a lot of supervision. Like if you have paid interns, even. Uh, doing a job of serial conversion, you're going to need extra supervision on them. They're going to need more time to do stuff. And obviously, they're going to need training. That's the whole point of the exercise. Right. So it's quite a complicated kind of thing. And, and in that, that, uh, that uh, uh, quote from the investor thing, it kind of got the impression that you saw this as a revenue opportunity first and foremost. So I'm, guess, I'm just putting that to you to get your response. Yeah, I thought it was intriguing that you have an industry of visual effects companies that can hardly even keep their people employed, that are leaders in so many ways, uh, that aren't making really much money at all, certainly not at margin. And then you have a school that teaches kids to dream about working there that's making considerably more. I mean, it's no secret that some of these colleges have uh, operating profit that exceeds our revenue. And when you go to their campuses, they teach digital domain software, which we, we, we know Nuke, uh, our compositing tool, is now a foundry tool. But It's an know, industry standard, yeah. Yeah, so they teach our software in the classrooms, and kids are running around wearing ILM hats and digital domain hats. And the people that teach kids to dream about working for us make considerably more than any of the companies that lead this industry. So that school in Orlando that we're talking about, I'm, I'm quite sure does more in revenues than ILM. ILM's clearly number one. We all love their work. They don't do as well at revenues as that school in Orlando. So as a, as a businessman, thinking about what ails this industry, isn't, wouldn't it be terrific if the soul of this industry and the work that we do and the people that do this work I, you know, did participate in a business model that was more successful. So the school, when we got to Florida, we were visiting these schools to just think, well, where's our labor going to come from when we open up the animation studio? And obviously Ringling was obvious and Full Sail was obvious and SCAD with a great visual effects program is obvious. But yeah, I'll admit to being a little bothered by two things. Number one, that the people training kids to dream about working for us that ultimately would never get a job with us because the numbers are just too great. If they graduate five to 600 kids a month, well, where are all those kids going to go? Uh, secondly, that, um, that all the schools are doing better than the leaders of our industry were doing. And thirdly, 
that they weren't even getting a real education, in my opinion. I'm a liberal arts kid and believe that you, when you go to school, you should learn how to think, not just what to think. And these are vocational schools by and large. They have a bachelor's degree they deliver in less than two years. There's no time for a music class in the Javanese Gamelan or French existential literature or, you know, I don't know, a, a night with mushrooms and your friends. You know, I mean, none of the classic educational experiences that make us what we are, you're not getting these at these for-profit colleges. These kids are graduating $90,000 in debt. They can't get a job. I think that's really wrong. Um, now, what I think is really neat as a businessman, just to put on the profit hat, look, the best business is a business where you can make money doing something that helps people. Uh, you know, who gets to build a university in their lifetime? I mean, that's a really neat thing. And we at Digital Domain all like the idea of doing that. And uniquely, we believe we're the first for-profit college that the Department of Education and a major university has said, well, you guys actually do care about the academic program. They may not think this on the blogs. This guy Texter doesn't care about anybody. You know what you have to go through to convince the academics that you believe in education as much as they do? And they hate the for-profits, right? The Department of Education is using gainful employment laws to try and curtail their activities. Yet at the same time, they looked at us and said, well, these guys are actually doing it the right way. We went to the academics first and said, build the program the right way. So, yes, I like the idea that there are revenues and profits to be had in building a business model that's also helpful. And as far as your specific question, just to get back to that, look, if you keep a project here that's otherwise headed to India, whether it's 70% professional and 30 students or 80-20 or 90-10, boy, that's 70% of the jobs that were going elsewhere anyway. If you don't radically reduce the cost of doing business in the United States, not just our industry, but any other, um, then you're going to lose jobs. And if you don't do something dramatic to give people experience while in college so they don't drop off the cliff at the end of graduation, then you've got an even bigger problem. And I think it's neat that we found a perfect marriage of the private goal and the public goal. And it's not perfect because, right, this is all theoretical and these classes don't start for a while and we're going to screw up a lot. First of all, I'm going to say more stupid stuff at some point and regret it uh, and apologize for it like I'm apologizing for that stupid quote. But, you know, we think our hearts are in the right place and we think this is a good idea to try and we think we're, we're more likely to keep a project here in the United States if this works than we are without it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We yeah. don't, I mean, nothing is better than a successful digital domain, and a successful digital domain has to be, or a digital domain media group has to be a profitable group, otherwise it doesn't continue. So right. there's no, there's no, um, there's no desire here for anything other than a successful, profitable company. The free labor thing. There are two really obnoxious things about that quote. Um, one is the use of the word privilege, you know, and. It's what started, you know, you have to understand when you, when you go out in front of investors, and I used to be able to do this when we were a private company because we raised money from other parts of the world, um, in uh, Europe, in the Middle East, in China, in the U.S. a little bit, and I would get up and I would 
show a film reel and I'd give a breakdown to Benjamin Button and, you know, surely describe the business model. I would talk about the legend of Tembo, this beautiful little baby elephant and the relationship with his brother and the importance of family. And there's this part of that story that, you know, I would choke up on every single time, no matter how many times I told the story. And when we were a private company, that was the investor pitch. And then we became public and the attention span is 22 minutes for a company presentation. And within that 22 minutes, you have to describe animation, visual effects, education, simulation, and you got to go through the numbers and you got to leave time for questions. And if I get up in front of a room full of investors and talk about Baby Tembo's relationship with his older brother, Butu, they literally will tell me to shut up, get to the numbers. They want to know about your margin, your profit. When you talk about story and you show your work, even if it's the technical work on Benjamin Button, they think you're trying to snow them. So you get into this habit of speaking to that audience. If I get up in front of a room full of artists and I start talking about profit, well, I'm an asshole. And so I think, you know, what I'm really guilty of here is not recognizing how you know, how the world all comes together by way of the internet and a video and a soundbite. And you've got the same company message delivered to different audiences uh, is a very awkward thing to do. And I talked a lot. I, I used the words free labor, and I was intentionally being provocative by that. Here's why. If all I say is, gee, we're reducing labor costs in Florida, um, isn't that great? One, I'm not sure anybody really believes it. And two, you're never going to compete with India or China. So Florida's just not going to cut it. There's not an investor in the world that thinks you're achieving any economic advantage. And at the same time, the way to make this college work is to have 10 companies that see these students as a real viable partner in their production activity. You know, so that a major game company, a major animation company, a major visual effects company, a major simulation company are all, just like MIT, just like Harvard, multiple companies all plugging in. And when you yell free labor, you get phone calls from companies that say, wow, tell me about this. Now, they don't think it's exploitation. We don't either. It's a great education, a great college degree, and great experience, and it, it's paid internships and unpaid internships, and it's working for college credit, right? And done so within an academic environment, blessed by educators that really are there like policemen, ombudsmen, to make sure that the students are really getting great value. Nobody shows up and takes advantage of kids and turns it into a sweatshop and gives them a degree and survives. The educators are on you all the time. So when I use the words provocatively, Free labor in Florida is better than cheap labor in India. Yeah, it sounds like a slogan. And, and I, I, I'll apologize for it, but I was trying to get some attention to that. <laughs> yeah, right. that, that, that happened. Within, within the strategic community, within the investor sure. community. Now, here's what's horrible about the quote. It started as a funny little tongue-in-cheek, imagine people paying us for the privilege of working for us. Y you know, privilege of working for us, that, that was definitely tongue-in-cheek. It's not always a privilege to work, you know, um, you know, under some of the conditions that we work in in this industry. And when you say that for the 
100th time because you've given 100 investor speeches all crammed into 22 minutes, yeah, you know what, you kind of lost your way, it comes out the wrong way, you're now in a pure profit mode talking to a bunch of investors, and you've really lost sensitivity for how it sounds to a different audience. And that, clearly a mistake. So let me ask you this, and I'm going to quote a couple of people for you, and let's see what you have to say. One of them is Scott Ross. And by the way, we did validate these with Scott Ross's comments. We didn't um, just take these off the blog. Anyone that I've referred to here from posting online, we actually contacted them to make sure they were right. who they said they were. Right? So Scott's quote was, visual effects facilities are unable to make money because they underbid each other for the pleasure of working on a film whilst the motion picture studios basically record... Uh, he is a slight spelling thing here, record uh, bank on the backs of the VFX facilities and its workers. And the pertinent part is this next bit. If the VFX facilities were not in this untenable situation, I believe many of the current ills of our industry would be relieved. Subsidy chasing, tax incentive hoarding, third world work workforces and now students, VFX facilities are basically trying to fix their heroin addiction with methadone. How do you respond to that? Um, you know, first of all, I don't disagree with his general statement, but I do disagree that it applies to us because, I, as I said earlier in this interview, uh, we're not chasing the visual effects work for hire business. We've launched a co-production division um, where we are trying to, frankly, create our own um, customers with films that we're producing, such as Ender's Game and other projects that we're known to have uh, become involved in. I, I prefer uh, sort of four or five years out that the vast majority of visual effects work we're doing at Digital Domain is in films uh, where we have uh, equity ownership. So it's not, it's really doing high quality work to tell high quality stories, to uh, deliver great films to uh, a, you know, an inviting audience. Um, he's exactly right. I mean, as I said before, if all we're doing is chasing cheap labor around the world, we're going to run out of places to go. When he says now students, where I disagree with him is we're not using the students to reduce the cost of visual effects work for hire. That is a point that I have made as that is a benefit within these investor presentations. Um, but by and large, what I've talked about more powerfully is the value of education and education as a business model. And so if your focus is not using the students to get cheaper labor, but uh, giving the students a better experience so you drive revenues from tuition, that that's the business model of focus, that's a better idea. Okay, so he also went on to say that the VFX industry is fractured, mistrusting, apathetic, fearful, political, whiny, without results orientation. It's been a bane of this fabulous industry since he can remember. This is, again, Scott Ross talking. Uh, and it keeps getting worse. And his hope is at some point it'll get so bad that someone will bandy, uh, everyone will bandy together and a leader will emerge. And, and I think what he's referring to then is the idea that until the industry forms some kind of uh, cooperative cooperative um, industry body that they're just going to kill each other and undercut each other. Do you agree that the industry needs to bandy together as a unit? Is VFX getting the, the wrong... Well, look, everybody in the visual effects industry knows that they don't know me um, for a reason. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody knew my name before this stupid quote. Um, I'm not the expert on it that Scott Ross is. Um, I don't know that that's a solution. I mean, I think we have the Visual Effects Society where I, I, I think that was, that was its goal. Um, and maybe this is a great opportunity for the VES 
society to they wrote an open letter to the industry which I really enjoyed several months ago and I'm sure they're sort of advancing some of those notions when he says who's the leader going to emerge um, I think he really thinks that I don't think he's looking for a specific individual I understand from the tone of having checked this quote with Scott that he was after the industry forming a united front okay here's why I think I, I he and I had a nice conversation after we sort of bandied about on the blogs together. So we hadn't he, talked he took a shot at your salary. He did. And I explained to him that he um, does not understand that out-of-the-money stock options that are entirely worthless do have accounting value, which show as compensation expense. Uh, so he now understands that. But, no, we had a nice, quick, general talk. Here's the problem. Any industry, whether it's visual effects or automotive, or apparel. Apparel is a better example. Any services-based industry where the vast majority of its expenses are in people, we are absolutely going to get crushed as a country by other economies that have different currencies, different living standards, different human rights you know, treatment. We're just going to get crushed by China, Thailand, India. It's over. It's already over. So it's... Um, to say that the visual effects industry has got a challenge, well, forget about visual effects for just a moment. Any uh, labor-based business where that's the vast majority of the cost, the U.S. is lost. So, so a group comes together and says, well, gee, we're going to fix this? Um, that's a pretty hard thing to fix. What I, frankly, have been trying to think more about, are there ways for us to take the brilliance of visual effects and push these into industries which will pay more, reward our people more, reward our businesses more. There's a $26 billion visual effects for military simulation industry that nobody calls visual effects, and it's all run on bad video game technology. It's 10 times the size of the visual effects industry, and if I bring it up, you know, the politics of people might say, well, gee, I'm not... I got into this for film. I don't want to help the soldiers. But in the same media piece that we've been referring to, you spoke about people working to get a film credit, that that would be a, a, a real carrot and incentive for them to want to be part of this. And yet, obviously, you don't get a film credit if you don't work on a film and go and work on a military project. And quite frankly, you're unlikely to get a film credit even if you work on a film unless you have a major contribution because it's hard to get film credits full stop. Right. Well, I look, I think it's... Uh, so... I. The, the politics of military simulation, that's personal choice. Right? Call, call it medical simulation. Surgical simulation is a great example. After we did the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, we were asked to be the keynote speaker at the American College of Surgeons Conference, and I've said this in many of my uh, presentations, we do better quality animation in a movie than we give our doctors to train for surgery. These are huge industries, and there's no visual effects company in either military simulation or surgical simulation. So... If Scott wants to pull together a group of leaders, I support that because it's certainly going to help. But this is a human labor-based industry, and we've already lost. I mean, and unfortunately, across a lot of industries, unless there are dramatic changes to currency and, you know, I'm, I'm a strange Republican, right, because I hate guns and I actually like tariffs and protectionism, which, um, but it's... We've got to do something to, 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 to deal with these other economies. The visual effects is just one of 100 industries that has this problem. And what we, what we think we can do, 
we're trying to become a content creator. We're trying to become an educator. We're trying to take our technology into industries that are 10 times the size of visual effects and give jobs to visual effects artists because why is it that the best quality is in film and the lesser quality is training our soldiers? I, I completely understand that, but, but uh, it's not necessarily going to be as desirable a thing to train up to be a military or medical simulator as it is to work in the motion picture industry. Like half of, I mean, we used to say in the old days that you got into film clips so that you get artistic freedom, commercials so you make money, and features for the glory, right? I mean, right. it is an, an industry that attracts people because it's the movies. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's, uh, that's why the state of Florida gave us what they gave us. That's why the Pentagon loves us. It's, I mean, it is the films. And so, but what do you say to the visual effects artist that, you know, loses his job to a project going to India? Well, at least I'd like to say, boy, you built that great Osprey helicopter for the movie A-Team. Would you mind doing that again for real? Okay. It's, it's well, a decent option, right? Well, question, It's not a bad thing. No, no, I, I'm not casting aspersions on it. I'm just pointing out that clearly digital domains, uh, one of digital domains' main selling points is what a terrific track record it has in film. Right. I mean, it's done you know Oscar-winning work. First of all, you're right. It, 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 you're right. I think I conceded that. I mean, that's what makes us sexy to the Pentagon or to the doctors. Um, what's probably also neat, what I think about our company and there are other companies like us, um, you know, going to Abu Dhabi and teaching... Look, Hollywood does not have an exclusive license on storytelling. You know, the best stories come out of countries of great conflict and culture and history. We just happen to be the best at making those stories look good. Teaching the world to turn their stories into the same kind of productions that we're used to here, that's a neat thing, right? So I, maybe Digital Domain is one company trying to grow the market in the Middle East. Obviously, we're not the only ones trying to do that in China. You've seen DreamWorks and Disney just in recent weeks talk not about going to there for production, but going there to teach the Chinese how to reach higher production standards. Um, that's creating more jobs for people. Okay, because that would be my second point, which is this discussion we've had, which you know, you've, you've alluded and, and directly quoted the increase in, in workforce in America and North America, but also you are literally doing the deal in China and a deal um, with uh, Reliant Media Works over Mumbai and London. So people have said it's all very well to talk about getting more jobs in Florida, but you're simultaneously trying to get jobs happening in Mumbai and, and London and China, and at least two of those countries, rightly or wrongly, are basically flagged as being cheap labour places, certainly not London, um, that are going to cause jobs to go overseas. Um, so, yeah, we have a partnership with Reliance. They're their studios. Um, Reliance is also bringing more people over into California as a result of this partnership. Um, and you'll see some joint marketing efforts between the two companies. Um, it's a three-year deal with a fourth year on option, right? It is. And, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a deal that I did not... Uh, sort of bring into this company, uh, but we have it and I support it. Um, it's, there's a certain element of cost savings in our current business because we forget about all these great dreams of the company we're going to become. Right now, 99% of our revenues is from visual effects work for hire and it's very difficult to win contracts. 
unless you have some balance in a lower cost environment. But we all know that we've got quality challenges in India. Um, and we, it, it's, I don't think India is the solution. And I've said before, my personal philosophy is that a business model that chases labor to cheap labor markets is a bad business model. And I've also told you that while we may have to partner with uh, folks in India to continue to be competitive in the market we're in today, I've also said that five years from now, I'd prefer to not be doing work for hire for projects where we're not a co-producer to begin with. Um, so you certainly know. worked out for Pixar having some uh, skin in the game as far as actually owning uh, <laughs> the content rather than just being work for hire. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I, I think that in the big budget action space, um, as much as investing in film may have a bad reputation just over the many years, uh, the, the visual effects companies work in really hallowed ground. You know, big budget action films that by and large all do pretty darn well. Big studios broadly distributed. And a lot of them open because of the work your artists do. Because, let's face it, a lot of big tentpole films open because your team's yeah. Produce spectacular imagery, not because of the stars, not even necessarily because of the. No, plot. I know it's it's. I look at the the famous quote that millions of people have uttered is, "Well, I'm not sure I really like the story, but the visual effects were great," and um, I, I somehow that's earned us the low spot on the totem pole in Hollywood. But at least in the eyes of consumers, we're heroes. Um, in children's animation, what's really neat about that space is, I mean, if you know. By and large, people see those films not just for entertainment, but for recreation. And when CG animated family films are broadly distributed, by and large, they all do pretty well. Because um, so. clearly, an artist who comes into your office tomorrow morning when you reopen, because we're here now as the cleaners are coming, um, <laughs> wants to know, you know, A, that they're going to work on good projects, B, that they're going to be looked after and obviously paid fairly. And then finally, the company's going to be around and moving forward. And right. that's the most I think anyone can want in this industry right now. Yeah, and I think that what's nice, look, we are public. We're fully transparent. Um, and we do have, uh, for artists that come to work with us, especially those that will pick up and move their families across the coast, whether it's here to California or to Florida, um, you know, they find a remarkable amount of openness and transparency in our company. We have nothing to hide. Everybody sees the, both the good and the bad of our numbers. Um, I, I, there's not a visual effects company in this industry that can say that. So I, I have friends, obviously, that work here. I mean, I know a lot of people in the industry. And you're addressing your own staff, like, tomorrow, right? I'm sorry, our own staff? You're addressing your own staff tomorrow, right? Well, no, the first thing I had to do after my boneheaded comment was write an apology to every employee of the firm. <laughs> Um, and so, yes, we did, uh, um, I did send an email out and uh, we're, we've invited our staff to sort of meet again personally, which we do from time to time. I definitely get a lot more time with the Florida people because I sort of personally hired many of those people. Um, I'm here uh, much less frequently, so um, this is not going to be the typical, you know, where I'm giving a speech to them about what our business is doing. I I prepared to get peppered with questions by artists that are as concerned about the, the, this issue as uh, you've seen as indications on the blogs. Um, and um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that.
Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us and, and go through the points. I do think that the thing this industry needs more than anything else is kind of open dialogue. And I applaud you not only for answering people directly on blogs, but then sitting down with us today and, and putting up with my Australian accent and uh, questions. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, it was my pleasure. And I, um, you know, I don't know if there's I, one last thing I would love to say is that it's, you know, I, this has clearly been a learning experience. I mean, it, it is, um, sometimes it's easy to just get so myopically focused on the task you have in front of you. Um, and in my case, you know, I've not been a leader in the visual effects community. I'm a guy that is privileged to own a piece of a company that I grew up worshiping. Um, and there are a lot of raw nerves in this industry. There are a lot of fears about where it's going. Um, and, and I tend to think out loud a lot. And I tend to dream a lot about solutions um, that I think are good solutions uh, that may not be perceived as such by others. But, you know, look, I, I, horrible comment, stupid quote, but it's led to a really terrific discussion um, where we're talking about this program. And we're malleable. You know, rather than, you know, getting hyperbolically upset about a program that hasn't really even started for two years, you know, the visual effects industry should talk to us about ways to sort of improve it. But to say that education is a bad thing is wrong. To say that we should all try and reduce the cost of our industry to keep projects here in the U.S. is wrong. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a good discussion that can come out of this. I think our company, you know, going from 373 people to 933 people in just the years that we've been involved, I hope that gives us the benefit of the doubt that people think we're part of the solution, not the problem. And if my comments uh, embarrassed my employees, they're not proud to work for the crazy uncle anymore, or, uh, you know, that I apologize for that because I, I think I've I'm certainly embarrassed a lot of our employees who didn't know how to defend what I said. It definitely came out wrong. But at the end of the day, we're proud of our company. I'm very proud of our work. I'm proud that I think we might be the only visual effects company that's growing headcount in the United States and, and also doing quite well in North America. Um, and as we go into other markets, we're going into Abu Dhabi to help that industry grow, and we're going to China to help that industry grow. We're not going there because we like cheap labor. That part of the business I detest. So, um, you know, we'll do as much as we can to further explain my stupid comment, but hopefully, um, you know, it's an open dialogue, um, you know, that uh, where we learn something from it and maybe people understand that we really are trying to help. Well, again, thank you for your time. I really Great. do appreciate it. Genuinely. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Mike, and thanks to John Texter for giving us so much time and talking so frankly with us. We tried to keep this interview as unedited as possible. We felt the subject required a bit more time, and it was best to bring you as much of the interview unfiltered. We know that you rely on FX Guide to bring you this more in-depth coverage of a story like this. I'd like to take a second to thank those of you who supported our pledge drive. We asked for support to help us do more coverage of major events and the jumpstart development of an iPad app, and you responded quickly and exceeded all expectations. This support has already paid off, as we will be doing a live six-hour broadcast from NAB on Tuesday, April 17th, live from the Foundry booth. Details can be found over at fxguide.com. 
You've been listening to the FX Podcast. In addition to this podcast, we do two other regular audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects and current releases, as well as classic films. The RC Podcast covers the ever-changing landscape of digital cinematography. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd also recommend our weekly high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. We also have a sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. This is Jeff Huser for my partners Mike Seymour and John Montgomery. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.